Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Well, our guest today has quite literally written the book when it comes to what goes on inside Whitehall. He's the premier chronicler of the past decade in politics, and so he's the perfect person to help us understand what makes a great political book. How do you make a sometimes inaccessible subject matter come to life for the public? How do you tell the tale of Brexit without losing people at meaningful vote three? The art of political book writing is something I've always been fascinated with, telling the inside story of politics, but in a way that carries narrative and brings the sometimes dry characters to life. In short, how do you write an interesting book about a topic that puts many people off? Well, today we have the master of that. You name a political event in the past decade and Tim Shipman was there, wrote the long read and probably has a t-shirt from the launch event. Tim has been a national newspaper journalist since 1997 and spent two decades writing about politics. He's reported on Westminster for the Daily Mail, Sunday Express and Sunday Times, as well as covering Barack Obama's historic first election victory in 2009. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Whitehall. It's a pleasure. We always start by kind of asking people how do they get where they are today. So why did you decide to be a journalist and how do you how do you end up being a political journalist? Uh, good fortune is a large part of it. But for me, there were three big events when I was growing up which made me want to be a journalist and, and specifically a sort of foreign correspondent or a political journalist. And I was kind of in my teenage years. Um, you had the fall of the Berlin Wall at the end of 1989 when I was 14, the following year, Margaret Thatcher fell, and I literally watched wall to wall. Um, you didn't have 24-hour news in those days, but I watched the 6 o'clock news, then Channel 4 news at 7, then the 9 o'clock news, and the 10 o'clock news, and switched to Newsnight. I was absolutely yeah. consumed by it, every minute of it, of the drama. Uh, and then a few months later, the Gulf War at the start of 1991. And those three things kind of made me think this was um, extremely exciting and glamorous, and that was what I wanted to do with my life. And then after that, it's a process of trying to get work experience and you do a bit for your local paper and you do some stuff at university. And I stayed on uh, after doing a history degree to do a sort of master's in international relations, which was partly about doing that because it was interesting, but it was mostly about going and getting a load of work experience. I did stuff with the BBC, with the Telegraph, with Newsnight, with various new other newspapers. And then got I was lucky enough as a result of all of that to get on the trainee scheme at the Express, which... Um, was even then still selling two million copies, but had kind of had a bit of a clear out and a change of management. Um, lots of the old guard were being laid off, and it was the sort of land of opportunity for a young, cheap person who was prepared to watch, look, learn, and uh, get stuck in. And um, so I did, I was a trainee there for a bit. Um, and then after one year, they made me deputy foreign editor, which coincided with sort of Kosovo and Clinton's impeachment and all of that. And as a reward, they sent me to do the US election in 2000 which was great fun. I was in Austin on election night when the leadership of the free world changed about three times. Wow. Um, and they got me to stay on um, to look at people peering at hanging chads to decide who was going <laughs> to be president of the United States. Um, and then with classic newspaper logic, um, the job came up as deputy plus close of the Sunday Express uh, sort of earlier the following year. Um, if you can do American politics, you can do British politics. And I sort of jumped at that and I've basically been a Westminster lifer ever since, um, with the exception of that two years out working for uh, the Sunday Telegraph doing uh, the 2008 US election. Um, but yeah, I've been here ever since and toiled away um, and got lucky again. I became political editor of the Sunday Times in 2014, uh, having done quite a long time. These days, people tend to sort of zoom up the ranks a bit quicker than I did. Um, but by the time I got there, I knew most people and um, then it all kicked off. We had the Scottish referendum, then the 2015 election, which was a bit of a surprise, then the referendum. And 
I'd never written a book. I'd always wanted to write a book. I was pretty determined not to write a book about the Brexit referendum because I thought that'd be very boring. <laughs> I think we all agreed it'd be boring. No one wanted to do it. Um, and we all assumed Remain was going to win in our uh, Blythe Westminster way. And I was standing at Theresa May's campaign launch for the leadership of the Tory party um, when Michael Gove's uh, message dropped that he was no longer supporting Boris Johnson. Yes. Um, and the great sort of Brexit cleave occurred and I immediately phoned up. Um, I'd managed to get a literary agent by then and was sort of planning something else. And I phoned up and said, let's let's do the Brexit book instead. Really? Yeah. And within 10 minutes, I had a deal. Um, and that was that. Um, and I did turned one book out in sort of three months. The second book followed a year later, similar kind of timescale. And I'm even now five, six years on trying to finish the third one, having had two kids in the interim. And every time it looked like this process was going to finish um and i was going to be able to draw a line under it um more stuff happened um so the big advantage of rishi sunak's premiership so far is that then it's been quite dull yeah <laughs> it's given you a bit of space to get the final chapter exactly he delivered a brexit deal at the end which gives me a conclusion um but i'm still toiling away i'm still doing interviews and i've got about three weeks to hand it in all I can say, Tim, is I'm glad that we're we're supplying you with enough drama to write enough books. I mean, in the last three years, I'd like to think we've got at least four books there for you if you ever want to do all of them. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, people joke that it's going to be, you know, sort of multi-volume. I did try to persuade them it was probably more than one volume and we could stick them out at once. But no, it's, uh, it's just going to be quite a long book. Oh, so it's going to be one book? It's going to be one book. At the moment, it's due out in November. Um and it's, yeah, there's lots of other people who have written books in the meantime covering aspects of this deal. Some of them have written 600 pages, and I've got to crunch five years into into one volume. Um, don't expect it to be short. So where does this one, remind me, where, or one of my listeners, where does this, the, the one that's about to come out, where does that start and where will it end? Well, the second book finished with um, the uh, joint report doing the deal that created the Northern Ireland backstop um, at the end of 2017. Right. Um and the second, the third one starts with with basically with that, which at the time looked like something Theresa May just had to get through uh, in order to survive, but actually was the sort of formative thing that has shaped everything that happened since. Um, yeah. uh, and about a week later, Dominic Grieve got an amendment saying he could have a meaningful vote. So those two events together are the start of book three, um, and it breaks down. You know, you've got eighteen months of Theresa May firstly negotiating with her own cabinet, then with the EU, then with Parliament that not working out, six months of Boris Johnson sorting it out, and then, you know, the collapse of Johnson, the rise and fall of trusts, and then Sunak coming in at the end um, is the second half of the book. So I'm kind of interested, though. I mean, throughout this time, you know, you're, you would be one of the premier people that people would go, what, what's gone on? You know, how do we make sense of all this? Or we're going we're gonna to read Shippers Long Read on the Sunday. But with all that going on, why do you then take on the extra... You know, I'm sure this is a mammoth effort, loads of extra interviews, all this kind of stuff. What? Why do you think I can add to this with a book? What was the driver that you were like? Because there's a lot of other, there are other journalists that's covered it. There's, there's no one that's written it in a way that you have. Well, look, I mean, I, I there's, there's various reasons. One of which is that I did the first one, did the second, and I want to complete the story. Um, I guess it's partly ego. You know, you say lots of nice things. I want people to think of me that way. And I feel like this has been probably the most interesting period of domestic British politics, certainly since the Second World War, and I'd quite like to be the one who provided a sort of complete account of it. I don't want to go on forever. Um, 
I'm looking forward to writing some uh, down and dirty fiction at some point, but so far the reality has been much more interesting and more detective ridiculous. In, uh, well, yeah, possibly spy fiction, detective fiction, mm. something with a bit of a political bent, I'm sure. But so far, reality has been more interesting. And <laughs> it, but it, you, you know, you get on a sort of wheel with it, and and you keep going. And um, I'm lucky enough that, particularly after the first book, people realised that I had the access, and they realised that if they didn't talk, it was probably the people who did um, that were able to shape the narrative to a degree. So you're constantly, you know, trying to persuade people to speak. I think I could probably count um, out of 350-odd people I've probably talked to, I think probably people on one hand who have flat-out refused. Some, really? some have avoided me. But it's, you know, it's kind of symbiotic with the work as well. You know, if I do a long read, I'll probably have more material than I can include in the paper, so that all goes into the note, you know, into the into the file. And then I do a lot of follow-up interviews. Um, I think there's a sort of interesting peak period. I think it's probably about somewhere between two to five months after events, probably three or four months is, is your best point where people can still kind of remember what happened, but it feels a little bit historic and a bit they're prepared to be a little franker than they were in the week that things were happening. There's a, there's a great value to speaking to people in the, the week that things happened, and I would tend... Uh, if there's a real dispute to elevate, you know, what I, was provable at the time beyond what people are trying to tell you later. But um, after that, memories fade. But the interesting thing as someone, you know, I mean, I'm a journalist, but, you know, I'm a historian by training. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed historians of anything much more distant can write anything vaguely mm. accurate. I mean, I speak to, you know, I mean, take the Chequers meeting, you know, the famous Chequers meeting. I spoke to, I think, 11 cabinet ministers that night. Every single one of them had slightly different recollections. Really? Um, some of them had definitely contradictory recollections of certain points. Um, and then someone leaked me the entire minutes um, a few months later. Um, and that gives a wholly different perspective. And actually, you've got a whole kind of a whole smorgasbord of, of interpretations of this stuff. You know, what is the truth? Everyone has their own truth to a degree. And my job is to try and fight my way through it and write as accurate and fair an account as I possibly can, giving everyone credit for what they sort of believed and hoped at the time. Um, and that's what I tried to do, you know. Um, I hope when people read this third book, they'll realise that um, there were sort of good and bad and incompetent and clever people on both sides. And um, <laughs> and there weren't just two sides, there were about ten sides, of course, in, in Brexit. Mm. Um, and um, it's... Uh, you know, my job is to try and show, did these people achieve what they wanted to achieve and did they go about it in a clever way rather than saying, was what they were trying to achieve morally reprehensible in some way? Um, and I hope that's what people will take from, from what I do. Why I love Shippers is that um, the amount of colleagues that boast about privately in the tea room being in book one or book two, uh, uh, names, you know, even some 2019ers were now elected. Name them. Name very them. proud, very proud. Uh, of that. Don't no, worry, Gullis, you'll gonna... squeeze into three. <laughs> I, well, I was about to say, Shippers, and I was feeling confident I wasn't going to feature in three. Then you mentioned the word incompetent. I went, oh, I can see where I'm going to come <laughs> up at some stage. Uh, so, yeah, no, um, I, I look, oh, obviously look forward to reading it. I suppose I'm fascinated with that process of you, as I say, speaking with colleagues during the week. I mean, how how easy do you find it, you know, being frank or do you, as you know, when you're writing these books, how much, as you say, do you have to take everything with a pinch of salt? Because obviously everyone's trying to put their own their own spin. Obviously, in some cases, I'm sure promoting themselves to sound much more important, influential uh, than what they probably are. How do you how do you sort of get through to the facts? Is it you relying on leaks of documents and minutes, or 
are there certain people you can probably take more at face value than others? I think, yeah, I mean, documents are helpful, but I think documents can be just as misleading as people, to be frank, because they're often written for a particular purpose. Um, mm. You know, take those checkers documents. Um, you know, Penny Morden, for example, went to war with the Cabinet Office afterwards, saying that she didn't think it was a fair and accurate account of what had been what had taken place in certain regards in that meeting. So um, there's but always... because Penny Morden was not very clear about what she herself thought. But... I think that may be the case. But um, uh, anyway, that's obviously uh, recounted in the book. Um, yes, I mean, look, you... you Everybody's human. You deal with people and you tend to rely more on people that you've got a long-standing relationship with who have a track record of telling you what's going on. Some people are much more self-reflective than others. Um, you know, you, do you get more out of knowing what Theresa May thought by asking her or do you get more out of what Theresa May thought by talking to 20 people who were in a room with her and uh, who were trying to work it out for themselves? Um, I think it's um, as much the latter as the former. Some people are very reflective. Someone like Michael Gove kind of considers what he thinks, but considers also what other people are thinking and also probably thinks about what game they're playing and what game he's playing. And obviously he doesn't wouldn't ever give me a full account of what he was up to. But some somebody like that is quite useful when they want to play, which is uh, sometimes a uh, lot less than it used to be, I would say. It's less than it used to be. I would say so, yeah. I mean, he's got this reputation as a sort of uber leaker. But people go through phases, you know. I mean, Liz Truss at one stage... Um, you know, you barely could move for Liz Truss phoning journalists to tell them what had happened at Cabinet. The second she sort of uh, decided she wanted to be leader, um, she became very tight indeed and uh, got other people to go and uh, do her uh, work for her. But I think, you know, I mean, the short answer to your question, Jonathan, is, it, you know, if there's a meeting with 12 people in it, you try and speak to as many of them as you can and get as many different perspectives. Um, you know, the, the slightly perilous terrain I'm in with book three is that a lot of the stuff that's been claimed after the event, particularly about Boris Johnson, who's probably the most divisive figure in British politics for decades, um, some of it, you know, there are flat-out disputes about whether claims are true or not, and that's quite difficult to uh, traverse. You just need to try and get hold of as many people as possible and look at who has a track record of saying what happened and look who has a track record of, uh, of denying it sometimes. But it's, you know, you can only do your best and... There are varying degrees of denials, as we know. Um, anyone who immediately tells you they can't remember something, that's going straight in. <laughs> but one thing I'm interested in, so I think a similarity is, you know, you, what, you want, your job is to kind of provide the view of what happened on a weekly basis of what happened that week in a, in a narrative, in a way that's understandable, rather than what you probably tend to get from the daily papers and even the broadcast, which is news snippets, you know, decision was made or whatever. How... When you when you sit down, whether it's on a Sunday or but particularly in the book, how much when you start when you started to write that first book, did you have a clear idea of what that arc was? So I mean, I was flicking back through it, and you've got the bit in there about the coup and vote leave. You know, I was there obviously for that, uh, but you string it all together. Is that clear to you before you kind of put pen to paper on the main book, or does that actually change as you're going around speaking to people and indeed writing it? Well, look, I think you'll have a, a big sort of picture of roughly what happened and I mean where you start is what happened and in what order did it happen then you try to look for the patterns and then you start talking to people um I think that chapter for example I kind of it was quite confusing what was going on at the time with that yeah. because even the, the, most of the people involved uh, didn't want really to talk about it um uh, quite as frankly as they did later um, I bet they didn't then it became you know, once I started talking to people who were involved on both sides of it, it became clear that that was actually a very significant moment. Um, and the whole tenor of the 
uh, referendum campaign might have changed as a result of that. Mm. So, like lots of people, I use a brilliant piece of software called Scrivener, and anyone who's writing a book should get it. It costs you 50 quid. It's the best 50 quid you'll ever spend. And it allow, it's, it's sort of built on top of Microsoft Word. So when you press a button, it produces a Word document. But what it does is it allows you to have a split screen with transcripts down one side, what you're writing on the other. And down the left-hand side, you basically create a whole series of little chapters. And so you'll start with each event, trying to put them in, in the rough order. Then you'll, try, then you'll sort of divide them into chapters and then the chapters into the sort of parts of the book, um, the different sort of... Uh, big episodes. Um, but the great thing with Scrivener is you can move them around if it makes more sort of thematic sense to, to do that. You don't have to sort of troll up and down a massive Word document cutting and pasting. Um, you can literally just pull them um, with, a, with a mouse on the left-hand side. So that, you know, the, the great secret about books um, and to a degree about long-form journalism is it's, you know, getting the information is is only part of the job the structure is absolutely the key particularly for books um if you can't see the structure then you've done a good job but for the author that is the absolute biggest ache of the lot so for example i've just been kind of going back over you know that whole period of um boris johnson sort of downfall so post the christmas eve deal you've got a whole load of stuff happens on brexit will they trigger article 16 of the of the protocol, will they uh, come up with this bill, which they eventually came up with? That takes pushing 18 months, um, mm. but is thematically kind of the same, whereas different bits of sort of the Boris downfall kind of split between it. And you can't fully explain the bill unless you understand what's happening with... But if you just do it in a sort of chronological fashion, there's no sense to any of it. You know, it's just one damn thing after another, as someone said about, you know, history as it's happening. Um, and you have to try and impose some sensible order on it. So I've done one chapter on the Brexit bits and then flashed back to, you know, um, the Boris downfall afterwards. Um, it may be that I end up splitting that chapter in two and, you know, it's all in what what's easiest for the reader, what makes it most explicable. And getting that structure is difficult. I mean, if you look at my long reads each week, it's pretty straightforward structure. You start with something interesting, an anecdote that takes you into it. You explain roughly where you're coming from, and then you tell things broadly chronologically, and you try to have a conclusion um, that hopefully speaks back to where you began. Um, it's not rocket science, but it's, you know, um, I've been doing it a long time, and I'm, you know, uh, I've, I think in that way, and, you know, I read some other people's long reads, and it's just more chronological, a lot of it, and it's not quite so sort of, you know, it's my job full-time to write these things now, so I've got to make a bit more of an effort to, mm -hmm. to make them read well. Um, and hopefully, you know, for both book and newspaper, the way I think is sort of what's the broad story here, but the other thing I'm always craving and what gets me most excited are what I call nuggets, which is either a great quote, um, occasional gullus work there, commendable, <laughs> um, Oh, or is God. it an episode or someone saying something to someone or something that happened in a meeting? And what I would like to think is if you read a long read, you know that you're as likely to find something like that in paragraph 28 as you are in paragraph 8. Um, and that's why people read to the end, which are sort of metrics on the Sunday Times show that they mostly do. Um, and the same with the book. If I'm going to turn in a very long book, which I'm afraid I am, yeah. you know, you need to know that, the Brexit stuff the, will be correct, what I call the science bit. You know, if you remember mm. that old Jennifer Aniston uh, hair advert, um, shampoo advert, that that stuff is correct, but frankly that it's 
there, it's in the background, it's the structure, but um, it's not while you're there. Um, and why you're there is because on every page there's going to be something interesting or something amusing or something that makes you go, blimey. Yeah. And that's, you know, my goal is to try and pare it down as much as possible to digestible nuggets that keep people reading. And, and you know, politics is all our lives. It's interesting. It's sexy. It ought to be digestible and it ought to be, you know, to a degree it ought to be fun. And some people think I overdo the fun sometimes. But um I think politics is about people um, as much as it's about policy. Um, and particularly over the last seven years, I think that theory stands up quite well. And that's how I tend to focus my journalism and my book writing. And with the, obviously, well, first of all, Tim, I'm going to clearly need to try and book myself an interview to maybe correct some of the uh, some of the things others have said about me or to try at least put my spin uh, well, in there for you. off the record, Jonathan, so, you know. Off the, well, I, said, I, never speak to, I never speak to journalists off the record, Tim. Some of the best me. quotes. Uh, but I can, I can imagine, I can imagine. Um, and actually, that's why I'm interesting. She said about people, and I think that personally for me, what I've always found interesting is that your work is something that really does, with a long read, lead into the news agenda into the Monday. It's certainly one of those things that, when I have conversations with colleagues or friends in private, that that's the basis for the conversation. And sometimes it's also used as a great reference point to try and understand, even as backbench MPs, what's going on inside Number 10, inside government, in order to understand. But when it comes to people with your book in particular, your books, have you ever had anyone ever like truly complain about what you've said about them? Have you actually lost, have, have relationships fallen apart with some people because they're not happy with how they're portrayed or what's been accused of what they believe is unfairly accurate as what they've said. I think there's been the odd occasion where someone's thought that something that was included about them um, was sort of more than there needed to be um, on a personal basis. Um, uh, I've had, I had a period, um, I mean, let's be, I'll, I'll be frank about this because I don't think she'd mind, but um, Fiona Hill, when she was, uh, before she went into number 10, was, not a close friend, but someone I'd known for a long time, and we'd done a decent amount of business together. Um, when she was in number 10, you know, I think uh, even she would now acknowledge she was not at her best, and there was a period of, you know, some some people who, who've survived still refer to it as the reign of terror um, <laughs> when her and Nick Timothy were running the show. Um, and, you know, I had a decision to make in the second book about how much of that I put in. I mean, bluntly, I sent her three pages of A4, um, one of which was what was going to be included and two of which were things that I decided not to include because uh, I didn't think they were germane to the, to the story I was trying to tell. Um, and she was actually fairly sort of sanguine about it all. Um, I don't think she was very happy afterwards. Um, and there was a period where we didn't really talk. Um, I've seen her in the last year or so and um, I think there's no harm done, frankly. People reflect on their own behaviour after the event. I'm not just talking about her now. I think people... Um, I've had a few people who don't like the interpretation of things. I mean, the interesting, you know, going back to that first book and who won the referendum, I was having a conversation on Twitter only about two weeks ago with Christopher Howarth, who's been a sort of uh, one of the leading researchers in the ERG, you know, a man who's, you know, very attached to that sort of old Maastricht wing of, of the ERG, thinks they're the ones who won the referendum and thinks any suggestion that Dominic Cummings and Vote Leave had anything to do with it is is fairly disgraceful and that my first book, you know, bigged them up too much and that the campaign itself was broadly irrelevant and that, um, you know, Brexit had been coming for a long time because of the work these Maastricht heroes had done. Um, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm sure James will have his views on that. I personally think that's an absolutely ludicrous argument. Um, it's ridiculous. Um, 
he's very much of the view, you know, it was all Matthew Elliott's creation. He deserves the credit. And I think Matthew Elliott uh, certainly thinks he deserves more credit than he got in my book. I mean, I gave him plenty of credit for being there, setting it all up and having the humility to understand that he was not the right person to run the campaign and that Dominic Cummings was. Um, and, you know, I think that is a battle that has continued to rage through the sort of Brexiteer community ever since. Um, it goes to the whole relationship between Boris Johnson um, and the ERG, um, which, you know, was at times close over the last six years and at times not close at all. Uh, the interesting thing is that Johnson, having been sort of kept his distance from them and even voted for May's deal on the third meaningful vote, I think to try and preserve his kind of uh, hopes of winning some One Nation MPs when the leadership election came around, um, he didn't take anybody with him, he just voted for it. They regard that still as sort of a betrayal. But then when Sunak's vote came up, you know, Johnson found himself one of just 22 MPs voting against it, mm. along with all those guys. So it's kind of interesting. Who else was there, Jonathan? I may have been in that lobby as well. Uh, I may have been. My first rebellion. That the lonely been. lobby. The lonely few. It was, yeah. A, a, a wannabe Spartan. But, but, on... but that is still a debate, isn't it, to this day? You know, why did we have Brexit? Um, now, I think most vote leavers would say that you had it because Cummings and others did a lot of research about where the public were and partly responded to where the public were and partly took the public to where they wanted them to go, whereas the people who had fought for uh, Euroscepticism for 20 or 30 years um, were very sort of purist about sovereignty and didn't really have a clue how to win an election. Mm. Um, I would be very surprised um, if that had not been a sort of 60-40 result against if Bill Cash had been running it. Yeah, no, I think that's probably true. I mean, on the point about contacts, you said about Fiona Hill, can you allow yourself to think about that while you're writing stuff, whether it's whether it's for the for the Sunday or whether particularly both for the book, when you're trying to really tell about something that's happened? As you said, lots of people will either not want to be in it or will want to be considered to be the person that made the difference. I'm sure when you when you're doing general elections, it's the same. You know, someone wants to be seen as the Svengali. But can you allow yourself to think about future relationships? Do you have to put them to one side? Because you've still got more stuff to write. You know, you've still got a career to look forward to. How do you get that balance? Well, look, any journalist who says they don't think about that is probably a liar or they're very stupid. Um, <laughs> everyone thinks about that all the time. Um, some people play things slightly differently to others. Um, some go in, make some contacts, blow them up and move on and make some more contacts. Personally, I've always thought that was a pretty short game and I've always preferred to play a long game. Um, but I think that doesn't mean, as some people on Twitter are constantly accusing me of just sort of taking dictation and being uh, you know, a client journalist, as they say. The point is, if you can get as many clients as possible, um, you know, uh, or become, you know, uh, I regard them as my clients as much as I'm their client. It's a two-way process, politics. Um, mm. You know, there's uh, mutual needs. Um, I, my view is that particularly since the first book, I've tried to speak to pretty well everybody that I can, um, and most of them know my reputation and are happy to talk to me and and think that for the most part, while I write stuff that's fun and often contains a lot of swearing, um, I do try to be accurate and I do try to be fair. And if you can persuade people that that's where you're coming from, they will then take it on the chin a bit when they know they've had a bit of a bad week because they know that next week it could be somebody else and that if they come back and do something good, they'll get credit for that. And I'm not sort of one of those people who holds grudges or tries to... I just try to do business with everybody and uh, for the benefit of my understanding and for the benefit of my reader's understanding. Um, and I think most grown-up 
MPs and ministers kind of get that and will cut you some slack when you're being a bit unkind because um, they know that next week you might be quite, you know, you might be much more sort of willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, I, You know, and, and in terms of the book, it's the same. You know, as I say, you don't have to imply the threat of... <laughs> If you don't talk to me, it'll all come out badly for you. I've never said that to anybody in my life. It is a mere fact that if someone gives you a load of information and great anecdotes, you're probably going to include them. And if mm. uh, if they big up that person rather more than the other person who's not talking to you, then, you know, it would make sense for that other person to talk to you too. And I think most people kind of understand that. Um, I'm, I, you know, I haven't finished the book yet and I haven't done my final tot-up, but, you know... Um, you know, the number of cabinet ministers, MPs, you know, I mean, as I say, it's it's probably well over 300 people that I've talked to for this. And m some of them I've spoken to five, six times as formal interviews. And that's beyond what I do for just, you know, talking to people week by week, and, you know, dozens of conversations every week. And, you know, you've got all those records and it's, you know, hopefully one day this will be seen as a sort of a useful resource for people. It's kind of, you know, when people talk about the first draft of 50 of the book. Frankly, books one and two are kind of the second draft after the long reads. This is almost more the third draft because it's it's the long reads and it's all the interviews I've done, but I've also got the benefit of seeing what some other people have written in their books, mm. um, some of which is right and some of which isn't. Um, and, you know, I'll draw on that too. So, um, you know, this is more of a history book than, than the other two, um, but still has hopefully on the page that kind of immediacy of putting you in the room. And so one quick thing, when... You're doing the book. You you just mentioned you sit down and you do a kind of formal interview. So is that will you will you want to do some kind of set piece ones with the big figures? So you'll say this, and you'll and that they're, they're fine with that. You can say to them, look, this is not about what's happened this week or last week. This is about the book. I need to square some things. Is that how you would approach it? Yeah, I mean, look, this third book has gone in waves. I did loads of it once Theresa May's government had fallen. I did a lot of interviews then because people were then free to speak about the previous eighteen months. I then did a load again after Brexit had happened um, about the sort of Johnson period and the general election and the first six months, and then I've once the sort of once Boris went and Liz had her thing, um, I've now done a load more, probably fifty in the last few months um, oh. to to do this, the last bit of Johnson the trust episode, and I'm still you know I saw someone last night for two hours. I'm still kind of pushing away. So yes, I do those formal interviews after the event. Um, but I also have some people who are willing to talk to me on a kind of two-tier basis. If they say something particularly interesting when I'm putting a long read together and they say, oh, don't use that. And I say, well, what about the book? And they say, yeah, fine. Yeah. Stick that in the book. Don't stick it in the paper. And then obviously others will come to me literally specifically and say, right, I'm going to tell you about this, but you can't use this bit and you can use this bit. Um, mm. So stick that in the paper and stick that in your book. Um, so that happens... You know, not all the time, but now and again. And then, you know, um, I, I then just fire off requests and go and see people. And some people, it's a 15-minute chat on the phone. Most people, it's a two-, three-hour conversation. Um, I then get them transcribed by a bunch of students at City University who've all signed NDAs. Nothing has ever leaked from any of those. Um, and so I've got probably top side of three million words of transcripts wow. Um, wow. for this third book. Just for the third book? Yeah. Wow. So how, how much do you reckon you've got in total over the three books? Millions? Transcripts. Probably five, six million, I would have thought, combined. And, you can, and you've gone through all that? I've still got quite a few to go through. I mean, you obviously, when, you, when I start writing the book, I'll start with the key people. You know, um, I'll start with, you know, someone who was there for most of it and saw a lot of it. 
you start with them and then you weave, you know, you weave in probably four or five accounts together to get a sort of semi-first draft and then you go and attack all the other transcripts and try to chop them up and as I say, this Scrivener thing's brilliant because you can you, literally, you grab the, you know, there's 200 words there, you chuck it into that little subsection, then you chop that bit and put it somewhere else. Um, and then I'll go back and sort of weave all that in. Um, and I've still got a degree of weaving to do. I've done most of the big interviews uh, in terms of in, and I've left a couple of gaps. There's a chapter on Labour and Brexit, which I haven't uh, yet got to grips with, um, which will cover about sure they have. two years in about 15 pages. Um but again, the strange thing for me with this book is that some of these interviews I did three, four years ago. Mm. And as I say, I've seen, you know, Anthony Seldon, um, Seb Payne, Harry Cole write things in the meantime that um, trample on my toes a little bit. But uh, shipment readers can be assured there will be some fresh material. Yeah. And uh, as I say, I try to embrace the nuggets a bit more than some of my rivals. So, you know. How easy how easy is that, Tim, for you as well, without people telling you, oh, that's for the Sunday, that's for the book? How easy is it for you to choose as well what you use in either one? Because obviously the, the Sunday is essentially in some part the day job, and obviously the book are long-term projects, obviously have major impact. How, how easy is that process for you to make sure you get that balance right? And like you say, have enough nuggets for the book to obviously, one, help sell it, and two, to make it interesting. Because I think one of the things that stands out in your books compared to a lot of political books that James and I have read and we discussed this before recording is the fact that it does feel more like a story. I personally feel like I'm someone sat in the room watching what's taking place because you focus on the people rather than always just talking about the policy or talking in a way that is a diarised, uh, uh, you know, events. Uh, and so how do you get that balance right? Well, look, I mean, the, 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 to, to where you started, I don't shortchange the readers of the Sunday Times. If I get something and people are happy for me to use it, I don't go, oh, that's good, I'll scribble that away for the book. I just use it. I think there have been some authors in the past who maybe have uh, kept stuff back. Um, and then, I mean, there was someone, I remember writing a book about Charles Kennedy, um, where he'd got all the material about his alcoholism and about, I think some therapy he'd had and all the rest mm. of it. He didn't tell his own newspaper. And when Charles Kennedy died, you know, he raced to sort of put it in the paper when he'd been holding it back for his book. And I don't think that went down terribly well with his bosses. No, um, and I'm not someone who's shortchanging the readers of the Sunday Times. I can get enough extra material um, because, you know, loads of stuff does happen um, that people don't want you to put in the newspaper. So, and they might tell you about it later. Um, in terms of, you know, the narrative, the way I try and... I'm a great believer in narrative history. There are, you know, I think historians and history writing is there to be interesting and it's there to tell people about a world they don't necessarily fully understand. Um, and to, something you said earlier, Jonathan, you know, journalists know kind of a very low level of information. Every journalist I know who's ever worked in government says they see 20 front page splashes in their first two hours in the job. Oh, yeah. Much more than they ever saw throughout their career. But what we have the ability to do is talk to everybody, you know. So book three, there are proper inside the Beltway insights from both factions of Brexiteers, from the people uh, on the Remain side who were desperate for a referendum, the people on the Remain side who hated a referendum but wanted Norway, the people on the Remain side who didn't like either of those things but but were looking at, um, you know, rejoining the single market, or the Lib Dems who had a big role to play in some of this, Um characters from the DUP and the SNP and, you know, the Labour Party and different factions of the Labour Party. Um, and I can pick up the phone to all those people and I, you know, I can pick up the phone to 
ministers and their advisors and different bits of Downing Street. And just occasionally, there's a week where it does seem that because you've got that sort of full spectrum ability, that you kind of have a slightly better view of the big picture than people in at the centre. And just occasionally, this happens maybe twice a year, you know, people in number 10 are generally asking you what's going on because, you know, the whips are only telling them something and they don't quite believe it and they're not quite sure what the rebels are up to on something. And, you know, you could they're much more likely to tell me than they are the chief whip. Mm. Um, um, <laughs> now, some of it's bravado, but doing the book is kind of trying to max that out, essentially, um, and give a sort of full picture of everything that's happening. And as I say, I think... I tried to do that with book one. There were lots of books on the referendum, but I was the only one who managed to speak to all the different sides and get, you know, that full perspective. You know, it, I'm sure a lot of what I wrote will be eclipsed one day and there'll be insider accounts that give away far more than I was able to discover. But um, I think the basics, you know, the basic story is there from all camps and, and that's why it ended up being the one that people look to. And I'm just trying to hope that that's the case with uh, with book three as well. You know, with politicians and maybe even special advisors, the you know the people who think they're really in charge, like James uh, when he was uh, in government. You know, people like that. Obviously, I suspect are quite easy to get talking. But of course, as you say, you'll want to get. I don't a full speak sp- to journalist Jonathan. We've covered that before. Oh yeah, sorry, apologies. Well, neither do I. So sorry, there we who go. are you? <laughs> so who, neither do I. Neither do I. We uh, you know we don't do it. But civil servants, because of course they're going to be in the room. They're going to have documentation. They're going to be part of negotiations during Brexit. How easy do you find it to get to those individuals and willing for them to share information in order to influence your book? Because, you know, it's easy. One thing for the the politicos, but what about the civil service? Yeah, the perception would be the civil service don't talk. Yeah, well, that perception would be wrong. <laughs> um, look, it's harder than getting a special advisor to talk, but, you know... So is taking so is taking a horse to water, you know, <laughs> or getting a bear to go and do his business in the woods. I mean, you know, um, special advisors talk. That's what they do. Um, Allegedly, no. Look, civil servants. Um, uh, some of them, particularly in sensitive kind of parts of the world, are not big on talking. Um, some of the ones at the top, you know, I won't speak about current contacts mm. or current people serving. But, for example, Jeremy Haywood saw the benefit when he was Cabinet Secretary of calling in journalists from time to time. It was pretty obvious to me reading various newspapers that he had a hotline to the Financial Times, um, sometimes to the Times. Um, When I worked at the Mail, um, I wrote a couple of disobliging things about him and he called me in and uh, made it his business to get to know me and there was some mutual benefit in that going forwards. Uh, It wasn't regular, but it was a couple of times a year I'd go in and have a chat. Um, Mark said, well, when he was Cabinet Secretary, I don't think did any of that. And I'm not, oh, really? I don't think it really... Well, if he did, he wasn't doing it with me. And I don't, <laughs> and I don't think he, you know, despite repeated attempts to reach out, um, which I thought he would have found uh, useful and beneficial, he didn't. Um, there are various people in government these days who see the benefit of that. Um, some of them do it directly. Some of them use intermediaries. Um, in terms of the book, I mean, clearly for me, the big prize is... Um, is the people who were in the room negotiating with Brussels, because that's obviously a significant part of the story. Uh, some of those people are very camera shy, and um, I worked pretty hard to make sure I could understand what they were thinking and doing. I didn't know any of those people. Some people who did thought it might be worthwhile, some of them talking to me and attempted to set those things up. Um, I won't say any more than that, but mm. you know, when you read the book, you can draw your own conclusions about uh, my level of access there. And looking ahead, you, you we mentioned before you're. I, th- I know from Twitter you're a fan of spy fiction. 
Do you think to yourself, your next book, you want to write more about politics? You know, we're going to have we're going to have a general election in the next eighteen months. What will happen with Rishi Keir? Or do you fancy trying your hand at, at something else? I think if I signed up for another sort of live political book, um, my wife would probably <laughs> execute me with a blunt spoon um, and great delight. Um, no, this has been a, an arduous process, this one, um, and I'm keen to put it aside for now. I'll certainly never say never about returning to this world because it's uh, deeply fascinating. It depends a great deal on um, on events. Um, mm. But someone might write a book on the general election. Someone probably needs to write a book on Starmer from, you know, taking over to the election, and if he wins it, you know, doing probably the first six months and then publishing, that's not going to be me. Right. Um you know, we're all renewing our Labour contacts at the moment, but that's definitely somebody else's job. But we'll see. I mean, I certainly wouldn't rule out coming back to this. It's, you know, it's something I've enjoyed. Um, but I'm hoping book three will draw something of a line under it and there'll be a paperback update, I'm sure, later, uh, sort of next year. Um, and that will give me a chance to tie up, um, you know, if Boris Johnson does stunningly return, you know, in that would be February, a a February, that would be a good ending to the paperback update. Um but um, no, I've always uh, my my literary agent took me on to write fiction initially. Is that is that true? Yeah. So that yeah. was your your first intention was you my intention. Write my intention was to write sort of Robert Harrisy type thrillers, um, wow. which is what I'd still like to have a crack at at some point. Um, and yeah, I've got a sort of sideline, and I'm quite a big fan of spy fiction. Uh, I think there's a way of combining uh, some of the stuff that's too scurrilous even to put in my books um, in Westminster with a bit of espionage and uh, oh, wow. you know, a dead body. Um, you know. On, on page one, you know, that's kind of where I'm thinking, what I'm thinking about at the moment. But uh, but that can be done at any kind of pace and uh, will still involve me uh, not having to be staying at a laptop on holidays with my daughters, um, <laughs> which uh, obviously is... Uh, I mean, it's the only thing worse than going on holiday and staring at a laptop is not having a holiday while they're waiting for the book to finish, um, which they expected to happen about six weeks ago and still hasn't, so... Um, we're at a pretty tense period in the Shipman House. <laughs> I've been well, there, that, Tim. Don't on, worry. I've been there, Tim. On that note, we, we can let you get back to it. I mean, that is a real fascinating tour through how how do you, how you write a political book. I mean, on just on one last thing, if there's anyone out there listening, because we have been contacted by people saying, how do you become a spad or a journalist? What would your, like, any tips of advice be who's someone who's starting out to write a book, any book or a book about politics? Well, look, if you want to write a book, just get on and write a book. There's no substitute for trying it. Um, lots of people, particularly lots of journalists, actually sit around thinking about the book that they haven't written mm. um, and then reach their 50s and they still haven't written it. Just just buy some, you know, buy Scrivener, sit down and make a start. And I think the political market for books in this country is now a lot more sort of healthy than it was a few years ago. I'd like to think I had a little bit of something to do with that. Hopefully the podcast too. Well, yeah, no, that's certainly the case. People want a sort of deep dive into things. Um, and, you know, uh, Seb Payne, Payne's first book was a more serious book about kind of the impact of Brexit and communities and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, his second one was a sort of down and dirty in, mm. inside the room Boris Johnson book. Both both have a market. You know, Raf Bear at the Guardian's just written quite an interesting book. Um, I'm sure Mr. Gullis won't agree with all of it, um, and I don't agree with all of it. But it's it's thought provoking about the sort of the kind of bigger picture impacts of what's been going on around us. There's lots of books I think that can now sell um, if you've got a, a penchant to do it. The great thing with journalism is there's lots of different skills. But the, the only one that really matters is determination just to keep going. And if people tell you no, just 
ignore them and crack on. Um, you know, I didn't have a single contact in journalism or politics when I started out, um, and I just got myself as much work experience as I could and badgered my way in and... You know, um, I'm not saying it's easy, but social media and the ability to put stuff up online quickly that people can see, you know, you can make a name for yourself much quicker than you could when I was starting out where you had to sort of do your time at a paper and gradually grind your way up mm. from writing the really boring stuff to writing the more interesting stuff. Um, these days, if you get a good story, you can just tweet about it and everybody will get excited and soon you'll get noticed. Um, that's the way to, you know, it doesn't really matter what your platform is as a journalist. If you can get someone to pay you to write words, then write some interesting words and people will notice. And if you want to write a book, just get on and write it. Um, and if it's crap to start with, you'll learn from doing it and, you, you know, you can make it better. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tim. And we'll look forward to seeing how much Jonathan Gullis features no, in... Well, and please. James Starkey, who knows? Yeah, James, of... James Starkey should be <laughs> everywhere, Tim. I don't think so. And I will happily in- be interviewed by you and I'll give it all. <laughs> I'll give it all. I'll let you know where James hit everybody going. <laughs> on that bombshell. There Goodbye. we go. It was well worth coming on for that. <laughs> <laughs> A big thank you to Tim for sharing that fascinating insight into writing the big explosive books that tell us the history that we experience in our British politics. I'm sure Tim has got lots and lots more still to go from 2019 to where we are today. You've obviously been listening to Inside Whitehall. We love the fact that you're listening. We want you to follow and subscribe, however it is that you listen to your pod. We want you to leave us a comment and give us a rating. And we want you to follow us and comment back to us on Twitter as well, which you can follow at Whitehall Pod UK. Mm-hmm.